Good morning, good morning Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is dedicated in celebration of the birth of Netanel Mordechai to Yosef Chai ben Mordechai and Miriam Bat Nurit Simantov and Mabruk. Congratulations. Breakfast in the Class also loving, lovingly sponsored by Terry and Rebecca, Darren and Nicole Ovid and the entire Ovid family. Lee Lui Nishmat, their late father, Mordechai ben Khatun, and Menashe Oved Alehem Shalom. May the elevation of his soul stand as a merit for his family and all Am Yisrael. Amen. As well, breakfast in the class in honor has been dedicated in honor of Arya, who resided there for his Hebrew birthday today, dedicated by his father-in-law, Afshin Hedvat. And finally, breakfast in the class is dedicated in commemoration of the rescue of 106 Jewish and Israeli hostages taken from the Air France Flight 139, which was hijacked en route from Israel to France and taken to Entebbe, Uganda. And in memory of Yonatan Netanyahu, Aleva Shalom, and Dora Blach, Alea Shalom, sponsored by Avram Simmons. And it's actually about uh, that commemoration that I would like to speak this morning in today's Breakfast in the Class. You know, uh, today marks the day of that heroic uh, mission that, that uh, ended in spectacular success with the uh, saving of practically all of the hostages that were there. Uh, Dora Bloch at the time was actually had already been separ separated from the group for medical attention. So she was not with the group at the time when they, uh, when they, when they got, when they redeemed them, when they took them all and brought them back on the plane. And uh, in, in, the, uh, in the fray, uh, Yoni Netanyahu was, uh, was struck by a bullet and, uh, and unfortunately uh, later on uh, at the, towards the end died, died of his wounds and became a national hero amongst, uh, amongst Am Yisrael. But I, I like to think for one second and talk for one second about this concept, about the fact that Israel sent a team you know, to a foreign country. Uh, they managed to liaise with another country to land and refuel. They had the plans of the airport because an Israeli firm had designed the airport. I mean, the story is remarkable. It's worthwhile, just for the sake of history, to actually go and study it and understand what it was that happened on that day. But my, my, my aim today to talk uh, with you about is not <clears throat> specifically about the nuts and bolts of the story, but rather perhaps at the intention, the integrity, and the conscience, the conscience, excuse me, of uh, Am Yisrael, where you could send a team into what was, in most cases, absolute suicide. A suicide mission to maybe have a chance at saving the lives of some of these passengers. It is a remarkable thing. And I want to extend this, uh, this issue. You know, there was another story in, in, uh, in Israeli history which did not end with the same desired effect, and that is the story of, uh, of Nachshon Waxman. And in that story, uh, unfortunately, the prisoner that they stormed to try and save winds up getting shot. And the news, if anyone remembers the de that day, it came uh, as a shock to the system. We were so upset. But there's one thing that I, I remember thinking so strongly on that day, and that was, look at Am Yisrael where there's one person who's trapped and they'll send a team of people into danger for one person. What is the logic 
to risk the lives of the many for the life for the life of one. How does that make any sense? You're in a crazy situation with trigger happy terrorists. What in the world could possess Israel to decide to send a team in after one person? Why would you do that? What is the what is the logic behind such a move? And why would Israel have sent their, their this team into Entebbe to do this? And to me, it it, it shares, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, and shares and shines a light on something remarkable about the way Am Yisrael, uh, guided by the light of the Torah, sees the value of a human life. You know, we read about this week's parasha about the para aduma, and the para aduma relates and talks about a person Adam kiyamut ba'oel, a person who dies in the tent. Someone becomes impure by virtue of touching, uh, of being underneath the same uh, roof as this dead person, and now he is impure with the highest level of impurity, the impurity that comes from tamem met from someone who's in the proximity of a dead body. And my friends, the paradox of the red heifer is such that the, the person who prepares the mixture of the red heifer, of the para aduma, to purify by using the, the, the red cow, the red calf, to purify someone who's impure, the paradox is that the person who sprays that, uh, that mixture he himself becomes, and prepares it, he becomes impure. And the person he sprays it upon becomes pure. So you have this magic solution. And this magic solution that's going to purify the impure actually impurifies the pure. And the idea that someone would present himself, would uh, extend themselves, would make themselves, render themselves impure for the sake of another is a remarkably Jewish idea where the thought process is not that someone is down in the dumps, their life's in danger, they're impure, we write them off. It doesn't mathematically make sense to send someone in, etc., etc., but rather we understand that there's a wider picture here. And the wider picture is that although, logically, it would not make sense to go and save some Israeli soldier by putting other soldiers at, in harm's way, uh, but as uh, the ruling was handed down in Eretz Israel by many poskim, was that if the soldiers on the battlefield would know that we Israelis, we Jews, have the same approach as the Russians, the Russians, if someone uh, is captured on the battlefield, they're an embarrassment to the Russian army, they deserve to be left there. That was always the concept. And, and in a scenario where a person has to do something brave, has to rush a hill, has to you know, uh, achieve or accomplish a military objective, if they know that no one's coming to get them, that there's no one who's backing them, that it's every man for themselves, they falter in those moments. There's something special about knowing that you're part of a nation where somebody has got your back where even if the math does not make sense, and there's one soldier that's captured, and it's going to take a team of 20 to go in and risk themselves getting captured, to be able to go and pull that one out, 
you know that your army and that your country and that your brothers and sisters are going to send them. And that if you're impure and if you've not done the right thing and if maybe you've neglected your, uh, your, your tradition or your heritage as a Jew, know that someone's coming after you. Someone is going to move to your neighborhood. There'll be some rabbi from Aish or from Chabad or from uh, Maor or from Olami. Some rabbi is going to move his religious family out to a college campus. He's going to go to this place where there isn't a Jewish presence and he's going to live in that place risking perhaps contamination himself to be able to be there for his brother in arms, for the people uh, that maybe have become impure. What a remarkable idea, my friends, that is. And I always thought to myself that it is the people who are willing to do that thing that make the illogical red heifer logical. They make the para dumas purification process, they make it make sense. When a Kohen is willing to do that, when an army is willing to do that, then the impossible becomes improbable, but still achievable. And that, my friends, is what took place on this day <coughs> so many years ago in Entebbe. Now, I want to, if I can, talk for a few minutes with you today about this idea of hukat, of hukata para. You know, our rabbis tell us in Mishnah and Avot that there are many things that were created that were supernatural things that needed to be created in the beginning of creation. <coughs> they weren't part of the natural order. They needed to be custom-made by God. They were a special build. And in this list of many things, there are three things. P, had, uh, P excuse me, Haaretz, the mouth of the earth, right? We just read about it in Korach. That the mouth of the earth should miraculously open up, swallow Korach and his, uh, and his antecedents, swallow the members of this rebellion, and then close up again. The mouth of the earth, which swallowed all those Ba'alei Machloket, that was created in the, in, the, uh, the, in, the, in the process of creation, and it was waiting for its use in this, in this moment in time. The second thing that's mentioned over there, the second mouth, is not the mouth of the earth, but rather the mouth of the be'er, of the well, of Miriam, that was sustaining the Jewish people with water in the desert. So too, the piha be'er was also created miraculously in the process of creation. And finally, the last of the mouths that was created miraculously is piha aton, the mouth of the donkey, the donkey of Bil'am, that speaks and, and warns him about what's going to take place. My friends, it's so fascinating to realize that the three parashiot that we have back to back to back all have within them, one after the next, one miraculous mouth after the next. The first miraculous mouth is in Korach, mouth of the earth. The second miraculous mouth is this week's parasha, the mouth of the Be'er, which when Miriam passes away, it's in her merit, the Jewish people need water, and that is the story, the saga of Moshe and striking the rock, which doesn't allow him to go into the land of Eretz Israel. And finally, the last of the three is the piha aton, the mouth of the donkey, which comes in next week's parasha, in parashat Balak, where the, the donkey tells Bil'am, 
you know, what are you doing? Uh, why are you hitting me? Don't you see what's in front of you? The angel that's trying to stop you from going to curse the Jews. So, my friends, I think the juxtaposition of these three piyot was to try and help you weigh one against the other. And it's in their proximity that they can be uh, compared and contrasted. And it's interesting to me because the first mouth, miraculous, the, the earth doesn't do that. Randomly open up, swallow people selectively, and then kind of just shut back up again. I mean, I wish it did. There would be so many people that I could ask the earth to swallow on behalf of not only the Jewish people, but the United States of America and the entire world. But, <clears throat> not naming any names. But there's, that's a miracle. You know, and, and the final one, Piha Aton, that the donkey opens up its mouth and, and speaks, that's a miracle. Although you see that happen on the, on the daily, on the news. But you see, right, the fact that a donkey, an actual physical donkey, could open its mouth and speak, you know, that's a miracle. It has to be created miraculously in the process of creation. But Piha Be'er, the mouth of the well, that that's a miracle, every well has a mouth. And it feeds people the water that comes from its depths. What is the miracle of the piha be'er, of the mouth of the opening of the be'er? And the obvious answer is, it's not the mouth of the be'er, which is miraculous. It's the fact that the mouth of the be'er is constantly moving. The be'er is not the... The, the well is not miraculous. It's the fact that the mouth, the opening to this well, seemed to be wherever the Jews were at the time. So the miracle of that mouth is not in what it gives, but it is in the fact that most people who give and most things that give, give from their own place, from their locale, from where they come from. It is an incredible miracle to find something that gives not coming from its place, but coming from the place of those who need it. Willing to adapt and move its own giving nature to what the person receiving from them needs to give. That is truly a miracle. My friends, this idea is represented by Miriam, where Miriam puts herself in harm's way to be able to go down and follow the basket of Moshe. She's literally admitting that she broke the commandment of the king. Now, earlier on, previously on Shemot, you might remember that Paro tells uh, Yochever and Miriam that when the babies are born, these Jewish baby boys, you should see if it's a boy or a girl. And if it's a boy, Abort the baby. Okay? Paro also uh, held of Roe v. Wade. Either way, the point is, so Paro in that moment says to them, abort the babies. That's what he says, so long as they're boys. Okay? What do they say to Paro? Anyone remember? Anyone remember what Miriam and Yocheved say to Paro? After Paro clearly sees that the Jewish baby boys are not being aborted. They say to him, the Jewish women are unlike the Egyptian women. They give birth by themselves. By the time we get there, the baby's already born. And the Pasuk says, and you see 
These uh, midwives, Miriam and her mother Yochevet, they feared God more than they feared King Paro. But my friends, what's clear is that in this process of denying King Pharaoh his wishes, they needed to have an alibi. Why did they just tell Paro if they feared God? They should have just said to Paro, screw you. No. They didn't say that. What did they say? They said, there was no opportunity to abort, your majesty. The babies were already born when we got there. That means that they were in a material place of danger. And therefore, they needed to come up with this excuse. Because if they did not have the excuse of kichayotena, placing them at the scene of the crime where they didn't kill the baby, what would happen? They would be killed themselves. So when Miriam escorts a Jewish baby boy down the river and then has the temerity and the chutzpah to emerge from the reeds when Batya pulls baby Moshe out of the water, Miriam is taking her life into her own hands. She's risking her life for the life of her brother. Now my friends, Miriam and Aharon are the two children of Amram and Yochevet. They already have one boy, but they only have one girl. Miriam says, better, better I should put myself at risk and not watch my brother be in danger. Better my chesed should not come from a place where it's comfortable for me to give, but that I go out on a limb for my brother. It's the same Miriam that waits for Moshe that then later in history we learned a couple weeks ago, we wait for her when she has tzarat and the entirety of the Jewish people does not travel while she is there, while she is still in seclusion because of her tzarat. When one person says and does the illogical, they might kill Moshe. Yeah, but if I go, what might happen to me? One for one, that's not good odds. When Miriam makes herself bad at math, ignores the logical and says, I'm going to do what it takes to be a ba'alat chesed, even though it doesn't make sense, and it's not comfortable, and it's out of my zone, you know what happens? We say that the whole of the Jewish people can wait for Miriam. And that is the lesson I'm reminded of on the anniversary of Entebbe. The many risking for the few, not just in the numbers of that operation, but how Israel is consistently doing this for its soldiers, for its civilians that are put you know, in harm's way. My friends, what has filtered down into the Israeli army is something that has always existed as an ideal, as a dream, as a, uh, um, as a Musar for God's army, for Am Yisrael, which is called uh, the Tzivot Hashem, which is called the army of God. We have always stretched ourselves out on a limb for those less fortunate than ourselves, even when it didn't make sense. And in Miriam's merit, what happens? A be'er, a well, 
it travels with the Jewish people. It gives, not from its place, not from what it wants to give, but from what the people who receive from it require. You know, it's a tremendous lesson in chesed, this idea. Because you know, today we pat ourselves on the back. If you give anything, you think you're great. But what if you're giving the wrong thing? What if you're giving what you want to give and not what the peace person needs to receive? What if what the person needed was words of encouragement, but you only gave him money? I'll never forget, there's a comedian, his name is Ricky Gervais. Interesting guy, okay. Anyway, there was a, a national tragedy that happened. I think it was during a flood, I think, I don't remember. And, you know, you had all these celebrities tweeting and posting about how their prayers are with the people of that place, you know? You know, my prayers are with you, my pra our prayers are with you, our thoughts are with you. And Gervais tweeted, he goes, I feel like such an idiot. You know, all these celebrities, you know, sending their prayers and their thoughts, and all I sent was money. And in his natural, caustic, letzanut way, he was making fun of the fact that people sent well-wishing and prayers. And I'm sure there's time when the most important thing you could send is money. So sometimes Ricky Gervais is right. But how often is he wrong? How often is what people need from you not your money? You know, uh, and on this day, I'd like to call to mind uh, Eliyahu ben Moshe, a man who came to this synagogue, who struggled to get a job, who was homeless. And he asked to speak to me and he told me about all of his problems and I, I, I told him, wow, it's, that sounds really tough. You know, let me see what we can give you from the, from the synagogue's tzedakah fund. In our synagogue, we don't have a normal tzedakah fund like other places. We have a fund of a set amount of money that we give to a person that comes to the synagogue. They can get once a year uh, for what they need. You know, each person can get for whatever they happens to be they're collecting for. So I'm ready to give him, the, you know, a check. He says, oh, no, no, don't write me a check. <clears throat> I said, why not? He says, I don't want money. I don't need money. He said, what do you need? He said, I need a job. I need an introduction. My background is in finance. Could you set me up with someone who does finance if I could get back on my feet? That's all I want. Anyway, I had on my desk at the time a $2 bill that someone had given me. And the $2 bill they gave me, they said to give, to give it to somebody who could really use it. It came from a, a, a big rabbi. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to give him the $2. And I said, look, this is not a money thing. I have a $2 bill here from a rabbi. Maybe I'll give you, can I give you that? And he says, yes, sure, absolutely. And I give him the $2 bill. And I thought, oh, at least I managed to give him something. And after he took the $2 bill, he said, thank you so much, Rabbi. He says, now I have this $2. I could give you $2 to give it to somebody who needs it.
So he took it only to give himself a chance to have the mitzvah of tzedakah to give it back to me, to give it to someone else who needed it most. He didn't want the money at all, in any way, in any shape, in any form. How many times do people come and ask, Rabbi, you know, we don't need fundraising. Just if you could put my name down on the list, pray for Rifu Ashulema. Sometimes Ricky Gervais. They don't want your money. They want to know that they're not alone. They want to know that someone feels for them. So why do people want to give that check? Sometimes it just doesn't feel so great that you have this person with his problems in your face. And it hurts and it's heavy to hear and to hold that. So if I could get, if I could get you out of my face with a check, with a couple of bucks, feel good about myself and that you're no longer polluting my positivity air, you know, that's giving from your place. But it's not just about money. You know, sometimes as a parent, what you want to dish out is tough love. Maybe that's what you're used to because that's what you got. Maybe that's what you feel you want to give because, you know, the school of hard knocks, that's what it taught you. But does, it, does that mean that your child needs tough love? Because that's what you have to give. The miracle of the piha be'er is that it gives life-giving water, but not on its terms. It travels with the people where they are in their journey. And that is miraculous. And maybe on this day, when we remember the willingness of people to go and to do such an act of, uh, of gvura, of omets, of courage, of bravery, then we could think to ourselves that even though no one's calling our name or punching our ticket to go save a, a hostage on a plane in Uganda, you know, life is constantly punching our ticket to save people. And maybe our bravery and our courage is not about strapping a gun on and flying out to the middle of nowhere and pouring over the blueprint of an airport, but it's pouring over the blueprint of somebody's soul and trying to understand what it is that they need in order to be able to get off their feet, in order to be able to get a job, in order to be able to get uh, a, a dream, in order to be able to have some dignity, in order to be able to reclaim you know, some, uh, some space in their life that they've lost. And that surely is in the hands of every, each and every person to be a Miriam who passes away in this week's parasha. Because Miriam is someone who is capable of being Merim, of lifting everyone that she comes into contact with. Not by virtue of giving what she's got to give, but by virtue of seeking out what they need to receive and giving it to them on their terms. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen, amen.